Travel in time with me in your mind, if you would, to Wittenberg, Germany in the year 1517. The Roman Catholic Church is acting inappropriately in doctrine and deed, and there needs to be reformation or change from within that happens within the leadership and the whole of the church. In this day, the church led what was happening in the country and the city, much like our current government, but with an iron fist. Even to how you spent your money and how you, quote unquote, earned your salvation. You needed to be in the church to be saved. If you were outside the church, you were anathema or you were damned. You needed the church, but the church did not need you. You needed the pope and councils, but they did not need you. These leaders had demanded that you buy what they called indulgences, as to buy your way out of purgatory and other things, and with enough money, you could earn your salvation, wicked at its very core, and a misuse of what God's word teaches. It, uh, teaches. This practice was evil. This infuriated, this infuriated an Augustinian monk named Dr. Martin Luther, who insisted that the Roman Catholic Church needed to be reformed. With the strike of his pen, he wrote what was called the Disputation of Dr. Martin Luther Concerning Penance and Indulgences, later to be called the 95 Theses. This was a document that Luther wanted to help to bring healthy debate to the church leaders and hopefully cause gospel change within the church. Instead, it started a movement. This was known as the Protestant Reformation or simply a protest to reform the church. God used a monk in Germany more than 500 years ago to, to begin a revival that would all begin with repentance. This is the very first line of that document, the 95 Theses that Martin Luther wrote. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ in saying repent intended that the whole life of believers should be one of repentance. This was catastrophic to the church in that day as hundreds of people in Wittenberg and because of the printing press, the surrounding cities walked away from the buying and selling of indulgences. This enraged the Pope, the Pope and councils. Not only did these 95 theses expose what was happening in that day in the church, but after some times, these reformers, much like Luther, would pin five simple statements as a response to the Roman Catholic Church and what they believed salvation was. They were known as the five solas of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solos Christus, and Soli Deo Gloria. The word sola is Latin for alone, a simple yet defining word. The Roman, the Roman Catholic Church had wrongly taken God's word and made it say what they wanted it to say. The reformers took these five distinctives and defined each one by the word of God alone as their highest authority. Infer informed by the word of God alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone. 
This stood in defiant opposition to the popes and councils. So as we look at these five clear statements over the next few weeks, though the Roman Catholic Church does not have the same kind of sovereign rule it did in that day, the question has to be asked, would we let each five simple phrase diagnose and expose sin in our lives and in our churches and shed light on who we are in Christ? So this morning, I want to take a little bit of time and look at the first one, which is sola scriptura, or God's word alone. From day one here at Redeemer, and obviously we're celebrating year one, we wanted to set it deep in our culture that we want to be a biblical church. Now, does that mean there are unbiblical churches in our city? Yes, there are unbiblical churches in our city. Does it mean that we here at Redeemer will always get it right? No, we will miss the mark sometimes, but our desire is to cling to the Word of God and let it be our highest authority. We believe God has spoken and is still speaking in His Word. We do not need, listen to this church, we do not need more revelation or any kind of secret revelation. His word is sufficient. Now listen to this church. There are pastors who say that I have some kind of secret knowledge or secret revelation or the secret language that I speak with God. And that is a misuse of God's word. His word is sufficient. So the question has to be asked, where did the reformers and we get this idea? Our text this morning, if you would turn to 2 Timothy, if you're not already there, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and this is a good one to have um, underlined, highlighted, circled, whatever you do in your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And remember, the context for this is Paul is addressing his son in the faith, uh, Timothy. He's written him two letters here, the way they have it broken up. He's encouraging Timothy in this letter, 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. But as for you, he's Paul speaking to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Who did he learn this from? From Paul, from the Apostle Paul. Verse 15, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this. Timothy grew up with his mom and his grandma. You can attribute that back to 1 Timothy where Paul addresses this. So he had learned about the faith from his mom and his grandma. He, he grew up without a dad is what we can infer from the text. So listen to me, parents with little kids, grandparents with little kids, with little grandkids. It's important what you do in your home and the example that you set for your children. Because we believe here at Redeemer, what you're doing is placing kindling around their hearts, and one day we pray that the Holy Spirit ignites that and gives them a new heart, and gives them a new affection for Him. So your example as a parent, as a grandparent, matters. 
We can, we can infer that from the text. And then look at verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that's where Paul ends the chapter. So look at how Paul encourages his son in the faith. Timothy is struggling and he's discouraged. And, and here's why he's, he's discouraged. People in that day were walking, they were walking away from, from true Christianity and they were walking back to their Jewish faith because they saw what Christians were getting in that day. And, and here's something I don't even truly understand. I don't even truly understand what it was like to be a Christian in that day. In that day, did you know they called Christians atheists? Because they believed in one God. And in that day, it was, it was normal to believe in many gods. The God of the sun and the God of the river and the God of the sea and all these gods. So it was odd for you to believe in one God. So they called Christians atheists. And Nero in that day, Nero in that day, he would, he would take Christians and he would light them on fire so that they would light his party up so that you could see at night. He would torment Christians. It was an awful, awful way to die. And they would execute Christians in, 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 the, you know, in the Colosseum and people would watch and they would, they, would, they would pay money to come see this. Being a Christian in that day was not something that was popular. It was not a check-the-box West Texas type of Christianity where you come on Sunday for an hour and you gather with the saints and that's all you do. It was a way of life, church. It was a way of life in that day. And people were walking away and Paul is reminding him, Stay grounded in what you've learned, Timothy. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Paul reminds him that he is on a solid foundation when it comes to the sacred writings. And remember, in that day, all they had was the Old Testament. They didn't have what we have. They didn't have this full canon of Scripture like we have, the Old Testament and the New Testament. They, all they had was the Old Testament. And Paul says, remember the sacred, you're on a firm foundation by knowing what you know about the sacred writings. So what makes him wise, what Paul talks about here? Knowing the gospel. You, you guys know this already, that we at Redeemer strive to be a gospel-centered, Christ-exalting, God-glorifying church. Amen? That's what they're doing in there. They're learning their, their, their six guiding truths about who God is. They're not in there just playing. They're learning something about God and who he is. That way it transfers one day into here. Amen? So we want to be a church who is, got, who is focused on the gospel. And it's not because we have, like, we, we've, we've found this, this trick that works, okay? If, if we found this trick that works, then there, there would be hundreds of people in this place. And, and we would have all the money that we needed to do with whatever we needed to do. But this is not a popular message to preach. This is not going to gather hundreds and thousands of people for me to say that you need to repent of your sin and turn to Christ. People don't want to hear that message. And Paul here is reminding him to know the gospel is to make one wise. 
to make one wise for salvation, as it pointed them to the Messiah who had come and accomplished all that was needed and, and accomplished in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and his ascension. It was finished, church. Do you understand what that means? We live in, in, this, in this interesting time where, where we're in this already and not yet. Christ died. He finished the work that needed to be done. Now we continue with the ministry that needs to be done. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying the work is done. The work is done. Now we can continue in ministry. And then verse 16 bursts through lifting Timothy's chin, opening his eyes and giving him a fresh breath of gospel goodness. Paul speaks with God-given authority on what God's Word actually is and what it actually does. All Scripture, verse 16, all Scripture is breathed. And this Greek word here, the, the, the breathed word here is, the Greek word is theophnustos. That's the word, okay? And it means it's breathed out from the very being, the very inner being of God. So this is a Trinitarian work. The Bible is a Trinitarian work. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all produce the Word of God, the Scriptures that we read. This is breathed out, the theophnustos of God. It is a collective work. We, he speaks, listen church, he speaks, we listen. Let me say that one more time. Look at me if you would. God speaks, we listen. Now, for those of you who have kids and still have kids in your house, how many of them listen 100% of the time when you speak? That's not even true at my house, okay? That wasn't true even when I was growing up as a kid. I didn't always listen to my dad. Even though he was this little five-foot guy, he had this voice that projected and, and would make the foundations of our house tremble when he spoke loudly, okay? <laughs> if you get my, get my drift. But when God speaks... We listen. Let me ask this question. Do we see God's kindness in this? God speaks to humanity in this very specific revelation of himself. He tells us about himself and also how we should order our lives around him. Can you imagine, church, can you imagine trying to figure out who he is and also how we live well in his world without this? If we were just kind of grasping in the dark trying to figure out who God was. Do you see the kindness of God for him to give us a specific revelation of himself? And here's what, here's what saddens me as a pastor at times, is to know that sometimes the word of God intimidates people. And that's why we're here. We're here to equip people and to help people read his word and to help make observations and applications and, and, and also help interpret what is God's word saying. Now, I'll say there are times when I'm reading God's word, I'm like, I have no idea what this is saying. So you know what we need to do when we get there? We pray. We ask God, God, help me. Let your Holy Spirit illuminate for me what I need to say. This obviously, from this verse, we can tell that all Scripture is breathed out, is theophnustos from the very inner being of God, and it's meant to do something in me and for me. 
It's meant to change me. It's meant to rearrange things in my life is what it's meant to do. And listen, church, don't take this as I'm beating you up. Take this as I love you and I'm your pastor. How much time do we actually spend reading God's word throughout the week? There's a difference between being intimidated by God's word and by being lazy. If, if you could calculate how much time you spend scrolling social media or watching Netflix or doing something that even is productive, good things that are productive, but because I love you, church, unless you order your life around the Word of God, your life is not going to go well. It is not going to go well unless you lead yourself first in Scripture and submit your life to the authority of the Word of God. Your life will not go well. You will be grasping in the dark, constantly looking for another revelation. Church, let's leave that lifestyle of laziness and look to the Word of God. And, and here's, here's honestly my question. If you have no desire to read God's Word, my question is this, and I'm going to move on. If you have no desire to read God's Word, are you a Christian? I hope that confronts you. Are you truly converted by Christ and given a new heart, given new affections, if you have no desire to spend time with him in his word? I have to say the hard things. If I don't say the hard things, no one will. There are pastors who won't say the hard things because they want big churches. I don't want a big church. I want a biblical church. I want a church who is a city on a hill and who knows the truth when falsities and, and lies come in and try to, try to uh, preach heresy or whatever it is. That's, what, that's the kind of church that I want. St. Augustine of Hippo said this, for now treat the scriptures of God as the face of God, melt in its presence. So I want to answer one question about something that we do here at Redeemer. Why do we do the reading of the sacred text before preaching at Redeemer? It might feel a little awkward. It might feel like, is that like a Catholic thing? Is that like, here's why. We want the word of God to come and rest on his people. To do exactly what this verse is saying. To breathe life into our service. And, and here's a diagnostic question. Do we tremble at the reading of God's Word? Are we staggered by its authority? Are we in awe of the fact that God chose and chooses to still speak through His Word? When the Word of God is read among His people, the mouth of God Himself speaks. Do you hear that, church? When we read the Word of God, the mouth, the very mouth of God is open and is speaking. And Paul ends verse 16 with what God wants to do in the, the life of the Christian. He wants to reprove. 
He wants to correct, and he wants to train in righteousness. All three of those things, equipping for every good work. This is the whole man theology that we talked about last week. It, it, it's a theology of our heart, of our heads, of our hearts, and out through our hands. That's the kind of theology that we want to practice here at Redeemer. Simply, if we believe 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 to be true, that all scripture is breathed out by God from his innermost being, we believe, listen church, we believe in sola scriptura. That's what we believe. We believe that God's word is the highest form of authority. It is our ultimate authority. So I want to end our time with this. How does Jesus give meaning to sola scriptura? Turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 4. I want to read uh, a text to you. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. My title says, The Temptation of Jesus. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you will, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Verse 9, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. Verse 11, and on their hands, and they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now listen, listen for just a moment. Je this is where Jesus begins his ministry, okay? And, and this is what the writer of Hebrews so eloquently describes for us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, where he speaks of a great high priest who sympathizes with us. Look at me, church. They're going to be okay. Trust me. They're going to be okay. They're in good hands. Look at me for just a moment. I don't want you to be distracted. This is Jesus' beginning ministry here. Jesus is baptized, and the pleasure of the Father is spoken over him, and the Holy Spirit descends on him as he begins his earthly ministry. We see the humanity of Jesus as he fasts, and Luke tells us he was hungry. This shows us the humanity of Jesus. And then Satan launches into a full-on assault of what he, what he thinks is a weak moment for the Lord Jesus. And look at the language that Satan uses. Listen to this, church. Satan uses this language. Command this stone. If you then will worship, throw yourself down. All of this, listen, all of this is anti-gospel language. Do you hear that? Do you hear the language that, that Satan is using here? 
to try to discourage Jesus in a very, what seems like a weak moment that, that, the, that Luke is trying to describe for us here. He says, listen, church, I'm, I'm, I want to make this as simple as possible because the Lord made it simple for me. He says, Satan says, do something and you get something. The gospel is, this is done, now you get this. Am I clear? Satan comes in with this lie. If you do this, you'll get this. If you do this, I'll give you this. And Satan even uses scripture. Satan knows scripture. Church, we are in a very real war that is taking place. Do you not turn on the news and not see the war that's taking place? We are at war. And I am here to, to lead us in battle, not to lull you to sleep. We are at war, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. There is a very real supernatural war that's taking place that we may not see. And if Satan knows God's word, how much more do you think the Christian needs to know his word? We have to know God's word to come up against an adversary who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. We have to know God's word. If we don't know God's word, we can be duped, we can be tricked, we can be led astray, we can be led into slavery very, very easily unless we know God's word. Satan says, do this and you get this. Jesus says, this is done, so now you get this. You see how the gospel message is different than what Satan is preaching here? This is, Jesus is practicing sola scriptura here. He's saying God's word is the highest form of authority. It is written, it says, it is written, it says, it is written, it says. And Luke tells us here that until there was another opportune time. So do you think Jesus was continually tempted by Satan? Yes. We can infer that from verse 13. Jesus was continually put in an awkward situation, in a hard situation by Satan. And Satan says, if you do this, you'll get this. And Jesus says, no, this is done. So now my people get this. It's the good news of the gospel. Fast forward to 1521. As Martin Luther stood among the popes and councils as he was put on trial for what he had written in opposition of the, to the Roman Catholic Church. They all leaned in, expecting him to denounce and recant what he had written and again confess what they all, except for Luther, confessed in that room. A false gospel. Instead, Luther responded with a clear statement. This is how Luther responded on that day. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the pope or, pope, pope or councils alone, since it is well known that they have, they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures. I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. 
I cannot and I will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen, is the way Luther ended that. And then they cast him out of the church as a heretic. Out of the church in that day meant you were not saved. Luther was out on his own, but he stood for the word of God. And I am not in any way comparing Luther with the Lord Jesus. Luther was convinced by the Lord Jesus and his example in Luke chapter 4 that his conscience was bound to the word of God. Christ is our sure foundation and men like Luther paved the way for us to have the word of God in print firmly in our hands. Just like Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by the enemy, by this do this and get this salvation, the temptation is before us to give in to the same pressure that the Roman Catholic Church gave into a merit-based, work-centered salvation. If I do what's right, if I clean myself up, then God will accept me. This is the worst and most evil news you could believe. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Last place I'm going to have you turn. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. This is another good one to highlight, underline. Starting in verse 8, Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the what? It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Look at those verses for just a moment. What the, the, the Word of God tells us through the Apostle Paul, inspired by God himself to write these words. It is by grace. Now, church, do you understand what grace is? If you, if you want a, a shortcut on what grace is, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. That means, it's, that's not like mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. Do you, if we understood how truly sinful we are apart from Christ, we would truly understand the grace of God. The fact that he does not just smite us and crush us under his wrath because he has every right, because he is justified in every way as a good and gracious king to do that to sinners who are worthy of it. And it is by his sheer amazing grace that he would call us into salvation. God's riches at Christ's expense. Christ paid it all and we reap the benefits. That is his grace. It is by grace, through faith. It is not your own doing, but it is a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Listen, church, none of us in this room, if you are in Christ, if you consider yourself a Christian, none of us earned anything God has given us, especially our salvation. We cannot earn. How does a dead person earn anything? You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are spiritually dead. You need a spiritual resurrection. Do we see God's grace in this? Do we see his amazing grace?
so that no one can boast. No one can stand up here at the pulpit and say, well, I, I, I earned a little bit of my salvation. I met God halfway. He did this, and I did this, and we worked together. That's not the way salvation works. The way salvation works is that he plucked us from the depths of the sea where we were dead, and he made us alive together with Christ and seated us in the heavenly places with him. It is by his grace alone. So I want to end with this question. Will we stand here at Redeemer? Will we stand in opposition to a false gospel? Will we claim, just like Luther, my conscience is bound to the word of God in thought, word, and deed? Is it truly our highest form of authority? Let the banner that we wave here at Redeemer be sola scriptura, by God's word alone, is what we look to. And I want you to take a moment before you leave here today. We have the five solas up there in frames. You might be wondering what that was. You can read through those, the five solas. I want you to take some time and read through those at some point. They are important to us here at Redeemer, not because some guys said them hundreds of years ago, but because it is by God's word alone that we can have a church at all. The church, or I'm sorry, the Bible informs what we do here at Redeemer. We don't, as a church, inform what the Bible says. Do you get that? The Bible leads and directs us. It is not Redeemer who says, this is what God's Word says, and, and take it out of context and twist it and use it forever, how we, we can use it here at Redeemer. It is our highest authority. Ben, you can go ahead and make your way up. I do this every week. I want to invite you into this. Here's my, my encouragement for anyone in this room who is not in Christ. If you have not placed your faith in Christ, is that if the Holy Spirit is drawing you, if he is convicting you, then he is saving you. Don't, listen, don't wait to clean yourself up. Did you know we have people, listen to this, this is how good God is, I love this. Do you know we have people who listen to the sermon online, but they're afraid to come in here because they feel too sinful? What kind of message has been communicated by the church over years? They listen to us faithfully, religiously. They even come to Bible studies and, and things like that, but they don't want to come on a Sunday morning because they feel sinful. They feel like, God, surely God would never accept me. That is a merit-based view of how God saves. And here's what I'm here to tell you as a gospel preacher is that we cannot earn our salvation. So my hope is this morning, if you're not in Christ, that you would place your faith in him and you would repent of your sin and you would look to Christ who can satisfy you. You will not be satisfied by this world. You will not be satisfied by your job. You will not be satisfied by your spouse. You will not be satisfied by your kids. You will not be satisfied by your house, by your car, by anything you try to put your hope in. Christ and Christ alone. We will all stand before a, a holy God one day.
and we will have to answer for our lives. And if you are in Christ in this place this morning, here's what I want to say to you. Let's be serious about this. Let's be serious about God's word. Let's walk away from, from apathy and from laziness and look to the word of God. And if you're intimidated by this, let us know. We can't know and we can't help unless you let us know. Let us know we want to help in whatever way we can. And we want to learn and we want to grow together. That's why we have gospel community. That's why we have Redeemer equips classes. That's why we have Sunday morning gatherings. That's why we have kids classes. It's to help you grow in your knowledge of the word of God. So my, my ask of you is, if you are in Christ in this place, would you let this be your highest form of authority? Let's pray.